0: Are you or a loved one stuck or frozen in addiction recovery? Are you inspired to drop old and limiting beliefs about who you really are? Process your
1: emotions, disarm the inner critic, and move from self-loathing to self-embracing with Melissa Armstrong Coaching. With online one-on-one coaching, small group coaching, and workshops, Melissa Armstrong can help you find the magic in the darkness. Check out Melissa Armstrong at www.strongarm.ca. That's www.strongarm.ca. It has been said that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's human connection. Here,
0: we connect anonymously. This is Addicts in the Dark with Quick Nick. A new report shows that opioid-related deaths amongst teens and young adults in Ontario, Canada tripled from 2014 to 2021. And researchers from the Ontario Drug Policy Research Network at Unity Health Toronto say that teens and young adults are accessing treatments significantly less. Why might they be accessing treatment less? Well, I'd say it's mainly stigma, and we'll continue to try and break those stigmas with Caller 42 and their story about addiction. Addicts in the dark. Hi. Hi. So you know how this goes?
1: Yes. Awesome. Yeah, I'm a listener.
0: Cool. No names, no exact locations, maximum of an hour. If All you're right. good to go, let's talk about your addiction.
1: Well, my addiction has probably always been there, but has been um, presenting itself in different ways through uh, sports, through uh, athletics, through friendships, all all of the above until I found out about substances and was starting to use them. Uh, then I really started to notice that I had a problem with my limits and knowing them, and I would say that I am a general addict. I will get addicted to almost anything that someone offers me um, versus an alcoholic, uh, somebody who's on pain pills, that type of thing. I'll just take anything and any opportunity to kind of
0: alter my mind or mood. So it sounds like addiction initially presented itself as preoccupation or obsession with certain activities or behaviors for the purpose of validation, social acceptance, escapism, and generally coping mechanisms, coping mechanisms that were healthy at first.
1: For sure. Um, until I wasn't able to play, then, uh, I really noticed that that was a feeling that I was missing in my life. And, uh, it was managed, uh, to help with my ADHD and my impulsiveness. And I played soccer, uh, quite competitively for most of my life until I got injured. And then, um, that also kept me away from, you know, experiencing certain things growing up and, you know, just normal kid stuff as, you know, like parties and stuff. I'd always have to go home early for practice. But when I was, the reins were loosened off and I had to find a different crowd or, you know, I wasn't able to go to practice every day and had that routine. It really started manifesting in in ugly ways.
0: And when it comes to acceptance, social acceptance, sports, like other hobbies and interests, There's a a shared identity, a community that you're automatically welcomed into.
1: Exactly. It's already made there for you. You don't have to do anything to be initiated other than pass the ball.
0: And drug culture or substance abuse culture in general is also a shared identity, a group of people with a common interest that is reinforced by your behavior Mm -hmm. So, what were those substances for you?
1: It started with, uh, with weed. Because I mean, in high school, there's the there's you know little sections of people and groups that group off, and I never fit into anything really in high school. But when I saw that there was, you know, if you had weed, people would smoke with you, and this was a way to get in. And uh, I found out I have autism, and this is really. Um, just how I think that people would socialize. And I know that if I have drugs, people will, you know, will sit down in a circle and, you know, kumbaya. But I think that there was a real distortion going on in my brain. And I wasn't able to see that the drugs were what the people wanted and not me. But I was always very aware of what could happen and all like the um, scare tactics and stuff that, you know, the, community and my parents would try and instill in me but um when I went off to University I had the freedom and the idea and um again wasn't really able to have that outlet of sports and I needed a team you know I needed friends and found that you know drinking would be able to um I I made drinking my thing you know how much could I drink how fast could I funnel this or that could I make money by betting to drink against the O-line men? And um, it was fun at first because I got recognition. And then when that became my reputation, I was like, I, I don't know if I can keep this up. This is not fun for my body. But then I started to kind of need it between classes and then I dropped out. So that's that's what happened from From the weed start, I guess.
0: And so what was the point in which you decided to try and make changes? Or are you still at the point where you're not wanting to or willing to make changes?
1: Well, I think that just a couple of weeks ago, I actually came to the realization that I have a problem. And this has been going on for four years. But last week, I'd say, um, or whenever I uh, reached out to you was when I understood how powerless I was against all of this stuff. I knew that I had an issue. I knew that I couldn't do it in controlled setting or like not controlled setting, controlled drinking with my friends. I'd always be the one that would, you know, go too far, do that too much and, and then start seeking other things. But I didn't understand how powerless I was against the idea of, um, an inebriate until, a couple weeks ago. So I understood that I had a problem. Uh, I didn't want to, I was in denial. I didn't want to do anything about it. You know, I was doing well. So I thought I was really putting on a good show. A bunch of the counselors at the university were trying to like, make me seem more depressed. So I would have medical clearance to leave. Cause I obviously was not doing well. I didn't look healthy, but I, I felt so good. I felt so good in my head and no one could tell me differently. And I was in so much denial and I didn't want to, I didn't want to really look in and see what was happening. And then that just spiraled on to returning back to my hometown, hanging out with people I would have never hung out with, um, to do things I would have never done. And then it kind of perpetuated from there.
0: What were those things that you would have never have done?
1: Oh gosh. Well, the things that I thought that I would never do, I thought that I would never, you know, sleep with someone for drugs. I thought that I would never get kidnapped. I thought that I would never, you know, be running with a certain type of person. Um, but I was doing this all with the thought in the back of my head, oh, don't worry, I'm going to get something out of this. I'll get some some tangible um, drugs out of this. And it's such a grimy feeling. It's so grimy. And I knew that I was better than this. Or at one time, I was better than this. But the person who I was at that point, and I allowed to be surrounded, allowed myself to be surrounded by, wasn't able to get up and out of that situation because I felt like I was at that level. So nothing was too low for me.
0: Nothing was too low for you. Or maybe you didn't think or realize or or wanted to believe that you were as low as you were at that point.
1: I felt that I was brushing my teeth and having showers and no one could tell me differently and that no one was able to, you know, I felt that we were all a similar type of person and that they were all so misunderstood and this and that. And it was not it was not the case at all. I was just clouded. And distorted thinking it was not good. I was in places I shouldn't be.
0: Are you able to go into detail about the kidnapping?
1: Well, when you have a dependency on a substance and no, no money to fund that
0: um, problem. What drugs are we talking about at this point?
1: So this would be um, downers. And, um, I used mainly benzos and this was back when like coding was actually a thing, which was insanely hard to get at the time, but I would try and make it my mission. And it was not pleasant and it was not good. I was also on a lot of prescription medication, um, from a faulty doctor who has now since lost his license. But, um, the kidnapping, this happened last Canada day. Um, someone had said some some things about me having to give them money. Uh, I didn't have that money and I I tried to call their bluff and they weren't bluffing and downtown area where the Canada Day celebrations were coming. uh, Someone pulled up and took my phone and tried to scare me around the block. And yeah, I got slapped across the face. It was not pleasant. It was not fun. And the kid was like 16. So that was really embarrassing. You know, then I really had to take a look back and think, what the heck is happening? Call it kidnapping, if you will. I would say more just
0: like an uninvited car ride. Sounds scary, nonetheless. And and you made reference earlier to yourself and others who use drugs as being misunderstood. What exactly did you mean by that?
1: Well, so... I have ADHD and I now uh, understand that I have autism. So a lot of the social interactions and norms and stuff that would come easily or just come naturally to someone aren't that natural to me. And so with drug and drinking culture, um, those are simple rules that are laid out. You know, you pass the joint this way, you put the cup down this way. There are rules to it. There are, you know other other things like that. So, um I found that my friend who I had met, she was similar to me in those ways and I think that because of the how would I say the feeling of being an outsider that addiction gives people and kind of like the the spite that lives within us as we look at other people being able to manage their daily lives and meet others for coffee and just do normal human stuff really affects that and and amplifies that even more so making us feel a bit more outcast but when in reality it's all in our heads we could you know we got this right but i think that when i was surrounded by other people who were doing the same behaviors and patterns and choices as me i wasn't seeing anything as wrong i was i was excusing them and i was defending them because i would say oh well So-and-so has been through what I have. I'm doing this. They're doing this. It must be what people, when something like this happens, is what we're supposed to do. You can't tell me anything. Yada, yada, yada. Obviously not healthy thinking. Just excuses.
0: And so you were justifying it to yourself for a while. What made you feel as though you were, for example, ready or willing to make this phone call to me today?
1: I think it's honestly just been time to get honest with myself the only two times i've been honest with myself about my addiction was for intake at uh at a rehab program i was going to and the nurse on the phone asked me a list of drugs that would have been in my system and i was like holy crap like she knows these drugs she knows what these drugs are like what is this and and I started crying on the phone. I was like, oh, I'm so sorry, dude. Like, she and she had to tell me, it's okay. Don't worry. It's not, this is what we have to do. That was the first time I'd, I'd felt seen, like, not, not wanted to be seen, like, like caught off of guard, uh, seen for what I was actually going through. And then this time um, I saw myself and I was so taken aback. I was amazed at how, Little control I had, and I knew I had to reach out to someone I knew who's in the sober scene. Uh, seven years, I think he has. And I just I said, "Hey, like I need help. What do you do? F- what works for you?" Because I don't have the luxury of, or I don't know if it's just me that sees this. There's some people that take sobriety like uh, a gender reveal, and they'll post all about it, and it's it's a huge celebration. But I still have that stigma. With mine I don't want people to know about me like my like if you were to see me on the street I try not to look like that and I know I don't look like that but yeah it's it's tricky I don't want anyone I know to work with to know that I'm going through this but tricky seeing yourself for what you are the first time and, and knowing there's got to be something
0: else done about it yeah that's a a huge part of the struggle the struggle of Wanting to be authentic so you can get help, but also fearing judgment when you get help. It's a it's a delicate dance.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. And every every time I would do a a drug a bit more potent, I would excuse it. I would um, I would make excuses and I would like pacify myself by being like, oh, you know what? It could have been this. It could have been that. And then there's going to be a point where there is no more this and that, and that'll be all. So I'm really trying to stop the, the escalation of the, you know, the use before I can.
0: And so by the sounds of it, people in your day-to-day life don't know what you're going through.
1: No, absolutely not. Nobody um, knows the extent of like what I have used and nobody knows um, any of that. Just because of the shame that has been surrounding it, which is completely unhealthy. And that's probably what keeps me in the cycle of addiction.
0: Yeah, dishonesty and denial obviously go hand in hand. You're not being truthful about your substance use with others. So you're also avoiding acknowledging the severity of the problem to yourself. So do you think that by being open with others, that might help you tackle your issues?
1: I want to so badly but I know that I'm afraid to get there and kind of peek back and see what was really going on. I'd rather kind of sweep it under the rug, which anyone would do, but it's not fair to those around me. Um my employers, my 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 friends, my cat, anyone, you know? Like no no one's having fun with this. So I just need to understand where I'm at and do better or do something and ask someone. Cause I can't do it by myself. I mean, I hadn't even told my therapist that I was still drinking and smoking because their reaction was, Oh my gosh, you know what that's going to do to your brain? Like your brain is not good. You know, it's like, I know my brain's not good, dude, but this isn't good either. So I'm just, I was reluctant to share when I'm in a good spot, but I'm actually not in a good place.
0: It's kind of like a form of, uh, People pleasing, you're hiding your use from others, and that coincides with addiction itself in a way. Lack of self esteem, uh, avoidance of discomfort, approval seeking behavior.
1: Yes, that's that's why I, um, again, the people pleasing and like the autism goes like hand in hand because they can't gauge reactions unless it's like a blatant smile and like blinking smile on like somebody's face. Um, it's kind of like *El Enchanted*, right? And then that also feeds into peer pressure uh, and people pleasing, and just so I will please people, really that have no part in my life or purpose in my life, just to be able to fit in for that one second.
0: You can get off the emotional roller coaster with Melissa Armstrong Coaching. Go to strongarm.ca for more. When it comes to people pleasing, I feel like. Pleasing those people is not as much of an altruistic trait as it sounds. I feel like it's more of a self-comfort thing.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I don't feel good about it at all. It's not, it's not done out of wanting to please people. It's just wanting to think I'm doing something right. And for me to have this conversation and think out loud and just work through my thoughts like this, uh, it's something I haven't really done before in a safe setting other than like institutionalized. And I think it's really good for me to just take a couple steps back, breathe and understand what's going on with the help of, or with the guidance of someone else who also has been in it. So, uh, I would ask you a question if you were me, like in my situation. So I had met someone, I had been completely honest with them, like, like actually completely honest, like they found me passed out, um, on the bathroom floor during movie night, uh, so I had no choice other than to be completely honest. They, um, they're also in recovery. Amazing person, great. Um, and I kind of fumbled the bag, as it were, uh, choosing alcohol. Or, I mean, I felt like I didn't choose it, but it just happened. Choosing alcohol over them, uh, making a poor choice. What would you do to try and? have a safe person in your life again after you break trust?
0: I mean, I would try to explain that because you're dealing with a disease, the behaviors you're displaying are not a reflection of how you feel about that person. Disease makes our bodies and our brains do things that we don't want to have happen to the our bodies and our brains. Addiction is no different.
1: That's huge. Yeah. Wow. I'm getting emotional. <laughs> yeah, that's um. that's that. Yeah. Yeah, I felt like I had no control. And then losing that person was just. Uh, <sighs> I couldn't analyze my behaviors because I didn't have any insight into them. And now I'm seeing it as a sickness like a disease or whatever people want to call it is um, it changes the optics of it all. It changes how you see the, like the lens of addiction and stuff. And I was seeing it as a me problem as me being able to manage it and stuff. And yeah, I can't, I can't like I've, I've had, you know, withdrawals a couple of times I've done them myself, but it's like, I
0: can't. I think it's also interesting that you, recognize that having autism coincides with your addiction because of the habitual nature of substance use and the norms or social code, if you will. It's one that you understand. There are social cues that you partake in with others when abusing substances, and those social codes outside of substance use aren't as easy for you to understand. Mm -hmm. And I want to bring that up again because something that you and I share, other than the obvious, is that we both play sports and sports literally comes with a rule book. You know what you can and cannot do. There's a perimeter on the field, boundaries, boundaries that you can't step out of. And that's perhaps why sports has always been something that you've gravitated towards. And the beauty of sports is that regardless of how you play or whether you win or lose, is that you can be the person you've always been. The person you were before addiction, the person you can be, the person you want to be. And you get to see and be who you are when you're playing your sport. And based on how we started this conversation, you said it yourself, who you are or part of who you are is an athlete. And so if I could offer any advice today, it would be to get back on the soccer field.
1: I really want to. I really want to. I have a soccer ball in the apartment. I just got to go. That really touched me, dude. Like I saw myself as a kid when you were talking. Yeah. I really got to, I really got to just, treat myself to a soccer game or something.
0: I hope that talking with me today provided some sort of outlet or clarity with yourself.
1: No, of course. I really appreciate what you do and your podcast is great. Um, I love what you're doing for the community. Thank you.
0: Breaking free from the cycle of addiction demands introspection and resilience, which is why reconnecting with hobbies and interests can serve as a powerful antidote, offering a pathway to fulfillment and purpose beyond the confines of substance abuse. Whether it's through sports, art, music, or other activities, rediscovering passions can ignite a sense of joy and accomplishment that addiction fails to provide by actively engaging in meaningful pursuits individuals can reclaim their identities rebuild their lives and chart a course towards recovery i'm quick nick thanks for listening
1: Addicts in the Dark is brought to you in part by
0: Melissa Armstrong
1: Coaching. Check out Melissa Armstrong at www.strongarm.ca. That's www.strongarm.ca.